Yeah, welcome to Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. Hope all is well with you. It is absolutely piddling down here in the great city of Salford. Horrible afternoon, but we're here together, you and me. Reach out to me during the programme via the website or the app. Download the Richie Allen Show app. I've got a very interesting guest for you to meet soon. I really do. Let's get on with the programme then. Let's do it. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, I cannot wait for you to meet Zachary Foster. He is a historian, an expert on the Middle East and the history of Palestine. He says, does Zachary, that he was a Zionist himself until he began to study Palestine. He has a PhD from Princeton University. I've heard some of his interviews. I've looked at his YouTube channel, which is very impressive. We've got to promote his YouTube channel. He's got a lot of videos on there about the history of Palestine, of Israel, the region, um, Jewish identity, and more besides. So Zach Foster will be on the program this hour, and I can't wait to chat with him. So as I said, it is an interactive program. You join in via the website, via the app. If there's something you'd like to say, I'd like to hear it. You know how it works. Let's begin today with Julian Assange. It's fair to say that he is fighting for his life. Uh, Do I give a very brief overview, a history? WikiLeaks published leaks, documents given to them, to the organisation, by Bradley Manning. Uh, This embarrassed the United States government, of course, and the military. Uh, They've been after him for years. It is alleged they doctored up rape accusations or or an accusation of rape against him from someone in Sweden to get him sent back to Sweden so they could then have him routed to the US, they felt the Swedes were likely to capitulate and agree with the American government, but they failed. He was in the UK, he knew he'd be arrested, so he holed up for a few years in the Ecuadorian embassy, as you know, until after a few years that relationship or that arrangement became untenable. They turfed him out and he spent um, the last three years in prison in London, Belmarsh. Uh, Priti Patel signed his extradition order in 2022. He appealed and he's coming to the end of that process now. Uh, The hearing is today and tomorrow. His wife Stella is absolutely terrified. It is believed he is very unwell. Uh, Too unwell to appear personally today was Julian Assange. Now William Hague is a former leader of the Conservative Party. These days he's in a bromance with Tony Blair. Yes, that Tony Blair, the cross-dressing, mass-murdering former Labour Prime Minister, him. Here's, what's his name again? William Hague on Times Radio. I would extradite him to America. Um, My sympathy with him is very small. Uh, No sympathy at all, William Hague. um, It's not about free speech. It's about the leaking of national security secrets. Which embarrassed the United States of America, because let's not forget a lot of what was contained in the leaks was, well, things like you had the helicopter assault on the unarmed civilians, two or three of which were Reuters journalists. Let's be honest about it. It was in the public interest. Damaging to the security of the Western world. And, um, of course, there is a legal process 
when that happens, if somebody is accused of, of doing that. Um, so I think that process has to be followed. And he should have known what he was letting himself in for when he indulged uh, in the publication of such leaks. So, um, yeah, my sympathy is zero or close to zero with his predicament. There you are. Stig Abel is in the presenter's chair. Does he challenge it? He does. Is there just a slight whiff here, William, before we move on, of the... A slight whiff. The establishment closing ranks here. This is uh, because... Is there a slight whiff of the establishment closing ranks, you think? Ultimately, what he did reveal was vast amounts of information, some of which showed that the American military was not conducting itself properly, some of which was very manifestly in the public interest that wouldn't have come out in any other form. And actually, when people do that, it is not right for the full hammer of the state to fall down upon him because... Public interest needs to be served, and we all are served when people know what a state, a powerful state, gets up to and wants to hide from us. William? Well, that that is the argument the other way. But I, and again, you can, people can say I'm biased or the establishment because, of course, I've been on the security side. I used to oversee two of our intelligence agencies. And in a free democratic society, but where you do have intelligence agencies and security services, there are things that you want to keep secret in the interests of the security of all the people in that country. We can argue what the boundaries of that. Yeah, but journalists on the other side, on the other hand, they've got to release information in the public interest. And the United States military murdering civilians in Iraq or Afghanistan, that's in the public interest, William. Uh, but if you have democratically passed laws uh, about that, um, and it's a country where those intelligence agencies are accountable. Yeah, but he's not American either. The democratically elected politicians. Then if people go ahead and jeopardizing that, there's got to be some legal redress. Otherwise, We like to continue to murder people overseas when we like. And we can't have people like Julian Assange letting others know about it. Oh, like, you know, says William Hague. We'll um, leave that. I reckon, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, Zachary Foster will have an opinion on the plight of Julian Assange. I don't know what that opinion will be, but I'm sure he will. You may remember the feminist Jenny Watson. You might remember her. Jenny isn't too fond of men who dress up as women and claim to be women. She ran speed dating events a year or so ago so that women could meet men. And she told trans women, men, who claim to be women, they were not welcome. And this caused a big fuss at the time. Now, she's decided to go to an extraordinary... She's going to extraordinary lengths to create female-only spaces for biological females. She's planning to open a pub and only admit biological women. Here she is, Jenny Watson, speaking... To GB News. I don't know if you know, but we had a lot of controversy uh, surrounding the speed dating uh, issue. No, go on. So, so tell me about that. So we were first platformed on Free Speech Nation. And on this there, very channel? Yeah, yeah. And there was a lot of backlash and controversy and venues no longer want to platform us. So this is because you wanted a speed dating facility that was for women to meet other women exactly, and they had to be exactly. biologically born women. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Doesn't because, seem that controversial. Yeah, it, does, that? It, it does not. It was a speed dating event for lesbians, but 
men dressed as women were turning up. They didn't like it. But they found that by complaining about it, lots of other venues said, well, you hateful bigots, you can't have your speed dating event for lesbians here. No, you can't. No, you cannot. Because trans women can be lesbians too, even though they can't. But anyway, so that's why they're going to open a pub. But, uh, yeah, we, uh, we've had um, men turn up who've behaved inappropriately, okay. and so we just had to take a stance. How will you, Jenny, maybe an obvious question, how will you be able to completely establish that the women who come to your bar are biological women? Very good. It's a good question, that. <laughs> because we know that certain men who identify as women, at first glance, you know, I'm not saying any more, uh, well, that, that is the controversial question. That is the controversial question. Mm. However, we're going to have terms and conditions, and if you breach those, then you're going to be ejected from right. our private members club. So it's going to be... No pun intended. Private members. Exactly. I so it's going to be a private members club. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So a private members club with nobody with their private members admitted, yes. Yeah. Back in South London? Yeah. Southwark, and you wouldn't think Southwark, would you? You know, you you would think Soho, Shoreditch, somewhere a bit cooler. Yeah. It's quite edgy, Southwark. You've got the Ministry of Sound down there. Well, exactly, yeah, yeah. Again, it's kind of ridiculous. No matter what you think, it's ridiculous, isn't it? That a lesbian woman cannot organise a speed dating event for lesbians, for real women, without having to be kicked out and turfed out of other venues because, well, because you are transphobic. It's mad, but they're going to open a pub. Good on them. We wish them well in their endeavours, our lesbian friends. As I give your messages, they are pouring in. Really appreciate them. Uh, hi to Les. Uh, thank you, Les, for your kind words. Hi to Mimi, uh, who says, Richie, you make the last hour at work fly by. That's good. It's part of the job, I think. Hello to Neil. Hello to Gail who's just bathed her dogs, looking forward to hearing Zachary Foster. So am I. Uh, hi to Shaps, who says, Starmer tried to stop Sweden dropping the rape charge. That is Keir Starmer, as the current leader of the Labour Party says. Shaps, that's right. Indeed, he did. Lewis has just been watching the vote from the United Nations. Uh, America voted against the resolution. What makes me laugh, the American delegate says Lewis is black. They wouldn't even let her into Israel or unless she was a diplomat. Talked about this on the Papers podcast earlier on. We'll get into it with uh, Zachary shortly. Uh, hello to Grace Ann, who says, Hague, William Hague's voice irritates. Uh, Julian Assange told the truth. The government lied. We're slowly learning. The government can lie and get away with it, but telling the truth could get you jailed, sacked, cancelled, or even banned. That's uh, Grace Ann. Thank you, Grace Ann. Well, let's talk about Israel then. Let's talk about Israel. Let's talk about Palestine. Because David Lammy, the shadow foreign secretary, has been speaking to Sky News. Now, the Labour Party has today called for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza for the first time since October the 7th. Now, this comes after days of debate in the Labour Party on how to vote in Parliament on a Scottish National Party motion calling for a ceasefire. Yes, the Labour Party has been in a bit of a lather. That's L-A-T-H-E-R, not ladder, lather. Right, they've not known what to do. The SNP um, is calling for a ceasefire. There will be a vote in the Commons tomorrow. And the Labour Party is like, well, what do we do? What do we do? But now they're calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. 
okay? Shadow Foreign Secretary David Lammy has been speaking to Sam Coates of Sky News. Coates asked Lammy if this means Labour is now telling Israel not to go and try to extract any hostages. By calling for a ceasefire, are you telling Israel that you cannot engage in any operation to go after any hostages. Here's what Lamy had to say in response. A humanitarian ceasefire that's immediate requires both sides to lay down their arms, and we're really clear about that. It requires those hostages to be returned, and we're absolutely clear about that. But we have also got to set out a roadmap for a political solution. So the motion, yes, of course, talks about an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, but the circumstances that we can get to that, which means for us, recognition of a Palestinian state working with partners, a two-state solution, absolutely essential, and it picks up the language of the recent ICJ ruling. Sorry, I didn't hear an answer to the question. Are you saying Israel can't use armed forces to get back the hostages that were seized in October. And and, and if you are saying that, isn't that an incredible position to take? It's absolutely clear that we now need an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. And indeed, we're hearing also that families in Israel want to see that ceasefire. Uh, So the ceasefire has to stop. Food and aid has to get in. Medical supplies have to get in. There are hundreds if not several thousand trucks on the other side of Rafa in Egypt that have been stationary, stood there idle for months now with much needed aid for Gaza. A number of people have posted videos and still images on Twitter of this madness. Um, But Israel won't allow it in, right? Some, um, even some Jewish commentators have been calling for, I mean, it's never going to happen now. You know, for the United Nations to basically tell Israel to stand down, maybe look at a no-fly zone, maybe look at peacekeeping forces, but it's never going to happen. And we absolutely now need to get to the diplomatic political solution that we require. What do you say to the families of hostages to whom you are now telling? Anyway, I'll save you the suspense, right? He goes on and on and on, does the Sky News presenter to try and press Lamy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, on are you telling Israel not to use the army to go and try and retrieve some hostages or rescue some hostages? And Lamy just keeps repeating the same thing over and over again. He doesn't answer the question directly. Um, The BBC spoke to an Irish-Palestinian woman, in fact, LBC Radio, excuse me, spoke to a Palestinian-Irish woman, a a Palestinian woman with Irish citizenship. She happens to be in Rafa at the moment, which must be a dire situation. There's over a million Palestinians penned into Rafa, and they're waiting for the Israeli invasion. They're, they've effectively run out of everything, every supply they need. It's horrible. And this Irish woman was able to speak to LBC Radio today, this Irish-Palestinian woman, to describe the situation there. Have a listen. We are talking about unlivable situations, unlivable circumstances right here, especially for um, elderly as as my parents uh, who need special needs. Like, for example, both of them, their medicine were out of stock. And for me as a... What does that mean, Shahad? Because, you know, forgive me, 
for, for being a little bit crass, but most people listening, if they've run out of medicine, they'll just try a different pharmacy or they'll just phone Boots. What, what, what does it mean to your parents when you say they have run out of, of medicine? Uh, it's not a luxury here to, to go to a pharmacy and Clearly. you didn't find it, so you go to another one because it's um, it's a thing that everyone like suffer from. The, the whole place, you can't find it anywhere. Um, Israel already like rejected any aids to, to enter Gaza for the past four months. Um, and for them, the medicine was in stock, now it's out of the stock. Um, and we are talking just a tiny example as my parents. So we have already evacuated the south um, in the middle of Gaza uh, at the first we, we, um, first weeks of, of war, as they asked us. So um, if you ask anyone how many times you have been displaced through these four months, I don't think that anyone would tell you less than five. Um, people are trying to evacuate more than one time in order to seek life. But that would be impossible mission through what we are living today. Uh, they gathered all people, one million half people in Rafah, that tiny space that in normal days you can't take more than 100. Mm. Um, leaving them without water, without electricity, without any, any needs that any... I think she meant 100,000, not 100. ...any human would want. Um, and then they are threatening for invasion. But surprisingly, that when you ask for your family to be in safer place across borders, um, you will get rejection, and 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 that's and that's clearly they want us to to live and suffer. They want us to experience pain, and it's a clearly a collective punishment. They want us to live, to suffer, and to experience pain. Shahad Walid, an Irish Palestinian woman. Speaking to LBC Radio today, back here in the UK, the media got its collective knickers in a twist about a birth certificate today. Have you been following this by any chance? The Home Office is even investigating after a baby's birth cert was returned with the word Israel crossed out in a passport application. The campaign against anti-Semitism. Yes, them uh, shared an image on Twitter of the document, which also shows signs of being torn. The baby's parents' birthplaces were listed as Israel, with the father's being crossed out. The campaign against anti-Semitism said uh, that this is completely unacceptable, and it had left the child's parents very concerned. Now, Stephen Silverman is the investigation and enforcement officer, wait for it, for the campaign against anti-Semitism, which claims to be a charity here in the UK. He's the investigation and enforcement officer, be afraid. And he spoke to Sky News about this. What did he say? Um, The motive behind the uh, scratching out of, of the place of birth, Israel, has not yet been confirmed. But if it pans out as we expect... Um, it will be a manifestation of a, a toxic, anti-Semitic, um, long-running campaign in, in radical and extremist parts of society that seeks to completely delegitimize the state of Israel. We don't have any um, parts of the UK where people seek to delegitimize the state of Israel. It doesn't happen. It doesn't exist in the UK. There's no evidence of this as I've um, demonstrated on this programme before, using facts and figures and surveys and polls, polling carried out over several years. People don't 
in this country they don't have any particular hostility for Jewish people even in even in this time and of course when I say even in this time Jews have nothing to do with and are not responsible for what's going on in Palestine okay you, you can't look at your Jewish neighbour in, in Fallowfield in Manchester or Cheatham Hill and, and make out they've got anything to do with it of course they don't people are sensible they know this so this is the campaign against anti-Semitism. It's what it does, right? It takes these silly incidents, and this is rather silly now, if someone at the Home Office is that childish, you know, um, and is wound up by what's going on in, in Gaza, that they would scratch out the word Israel. It's a bit childish, but it isn't indicative of, you know, an existential threat to Jewish people. I've got to keep repeating this. And also, admit, this is just my opinion. Um it was given oxygen and entered public life during in the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, and it has absolutely exploded since the um, events of the 7th of October last year. The audio, by the way, is the problem with the audio is Sky News, not me. It's a, it's a regular feature now on British news channels. The audio levels for their guests and the, the top, you know what the top means, um, they, they just don't adjust it, it's terrible and I don't have time to clean it up to be honest with you he goes on to say this, have a listen Well another statistic that's worth bearing in mind is in the month after October the 7th the Metropolitan Police were reporting a 1,350% increase in anti-Semitic hate crime over the same period the previous year the Jewish community feels absolutely under siege The Jewish community feels under siege um, and, the, and the sad fact is that in Britain in 2024 Jews are hiding. Nonsense. I know this because my accountants are Jewish. They're not hiding. They're working. The company is called Accounts Direct. They've not asked me to do this. They've not given me any money. They're a bloody good firm. Family firm. Great people. They're not in hiding. I swear to God they were working today. Nearly 70% say that they would not display any sign of their identity when out in public. Nonsense. Again, I was in the local shopping centre yesterday morning buying some groceries. Um, there are there, there is a tiny pocket of Jewish people in Salford. And I came across some people shopping. The gentleman and his son were wearing the kippah. Nobody's hiding their Jewishness. This is nonsense. 22 and a half minutes past the hour. It's Tuesday's Richie Allen Show with me, Richie Allen. Zachary Foster will be on the programme shortly. He's an academic and has um, um, spent his recent years studying the history of the region, the history of Palestine and Israel. He says he was a Zionist himself until he began to study it. He has a PhD in Near Eastern Studies from the very impressive Princeton University and he's a fellow at the Rutgers Centre for Security, Race and Rights. His take on what's happening now in Gaza will of course be very interesting so he'll join me shortly. In the meantime, thanks for your messages. Pietro says, Richie, are we really to believe that Israel's mission and reason for the continuing assault on Gaza is to free the Israeli hostages? It's smoke and mirrors, says Pietro. Israel will continue to massacre fleeing Palestinians with impunity. Well, to be honest, Pietro, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, isn't claiming that recovering the hostages is his priority. Listening to, to Netanyahu, you very rarely hear any mention of the hostages. Netanyahu is talking about 
um, this being basically uh, the final straw and that the, the Israeli Defence Force, under his command, will do all it can to rid the region of Hamas permanently. That's what he's saying. They're not talking too much about uh, the hostages, at least not when I listen to it anyway. Don says, regarding Labour, it has taken more than four months and 30,000 deaths for them to speak out. Perhaps it's an election year, asks Don. Call me cynical, says Don. Don, I think you might be right. Because in many constituencies where the outcome might be somewhat doubtful, you know, marginal seats, by marginal seats we mean seats which are not really um, what we would call safe seats, where Labour might have a genuine challenge from a Tory candidate. In those constituencies, you might have a lot of people, um, British Asians, right, who might identify as Muslim. And yes, they have been absolutely shocked at uh, the Labour Party's failure to criticise the Israeli government for what's happened since October 7th. So yeah, that might very well be true. Um, Hello to Ian. Hello, Ian. He says, the passport thing will probably, he says, be simply Zionist propaganda and fake. Well, not necessarily, Ian. You know, maybe, but not necessarily. You know, there are people who are pretty pissed off with what's going on in Gaza and might resort to childish things like scratching out the name Israel on the birth cert of a of a baby. I mean, you know, worse things have happened. But, but I hear you. Ultimately, I don't know what happened. Andrew asks, what was to stop the father defacing the birth cert and making a story about anti-Semitism? I suppose nothing, but I like to give people the benefit of the doubt, you know. It's the sort of thing you could imagine people doing. Look, let's be honest about it. While I claim over and over again that there is no societal anti-Jewish issue in the UK, there isn't. It doesn't mean that things don't happen. You know, occasionally a cemetery will see some graves defaced. It does happen, you know. Occasionally a Jewish man will walk down the road and he will obviously be Jewish because of what he is wearing and he will be insulted. It does happen, you know. It does happen. But as I said, it doesn't mean that there is a wider societal issue. And again, this is borne out by repeated polling over the years. Back in 20... I can't remember what year it was, 2017, I think. There was one of the biggest surveys ever carried out in the UK on people's attitudes to people from minority backgrounds. It was an exhaustive study. Okay, you can read about it online. I'm not saying Wikipedia, by the way, is any... I'm not saying that you, you you know you should take anything you read on Wikipedia and take it as fact. I'm not saying this, but th- there isn't there isn't there is an entry on Wikipedia about this. Anyway, it came back and said that basically the UK is one of the most tolerant places to live in the world, and there are no attitudes towards Jewish people in this country that any Jewish people should be really concerned about. Like we said, there's always a dipstick. Always is, you know. The guy who blames the Jews for everything. But he's like one in a million these days. The time is 27 minutes past the hour. The Eagles on the Richie Allen Show. My guest is coming next after this. Right, it's uh, just about 13 minutes past the hour of four. Half four here in Salford in the UK. 
Welcoming our, welcoming our listeners around the world. Thanks for your messages, by the way, through the app and through the website. A lot of interest in my guest, who, um, just before we welcome him, I will put links on the podcast notes after the live show to his YouTube channel and to his websites. Okay, before we welcome Zachary Foster to the programme, let me read you this from the BBC News website. This just in, in the last hour. So the United States has vetoed a resolution at the UN demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza after proposing its own draft urging a temporary ceasefire. So Algeria put forward a a resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire. The US vetoed it. Washington said that Algeria's proposal would jeopardise talks to end the war. In its own resolution, we've been talking about it, the United States warns or will warn Israel not to invade the city of Rafah. The US had previously avoided the word ceasefire during UN votes on the war, but President Joe Biden has recently made similar comments. So to discuss this and more, let's welcome to the programme Zachary Foster. Now, Zachary is a historian. He has a PhD in Near Eastern Studies from Princeton University. He is a fellow at the Rutgers Centre for Security, Race and Rights. And he says to Zachary that he himself was a Zionist until he began studying Palestine. He has a brilliant YouTube channel with a lot of videos with um, little mini lectures about the history of Palestine, the Middle East and Israel. Let's welcome him to the programme. It's a pleasure to welcome Zachary Foster to the Richie Allen Show. Hello, Zach. Welcome. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well, thanks, and thanks so much for having me. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you came on. It's nice to hear uh, you this afternoon. So what is your reaction, Zach, first of all, to the US vetoing the Algerian proposal, saying, well, look, no, that will jeopardise any talks to end the war. Let's go with our own resolution, which warns Israel not to invade the city of Rafah, where around about a million and a half Palestinians are currently um, hiding. What's your reaction to that? Well, this is more of the same. This is has been consistent U.S. government policy for the past four and a half months now, which is that uh, when Israel kills, uh, well, excuse me, when Palestinians kill Israeli civilians, uh, world leaders uh, like Joe Biden insist that their uh, desire is to annihilate Israel. And then when the Israeli military kills 40 times as many Palestinians, um, the Israeli military apparently is, does not have a desire to annihilate uh, Palestinians. They're acting in self-defense. Um, and so th- th- this is just more of the same. Um, the United States at this point, it would almost be hard for uh, uh, for for the U.S. government to come out and, and actually call for a ceasefire because that would be implying that up until now that Israel has been carrying out these acts of genocide. So that their, own, their hands are tied. They're so far deep the, the, into the uh, um, support for both diplomatic and, and political and military um, support for this ongoing genocidal war being in wage on Gaza, it's almost difficult to imagine them reversing course. What about, because um, I, I will have, I, I, I have Jewish listeners, I know I do because I hear from them. Some of them will attend protests in Manchester and in London, protests against what Israel is doing in Palestine. But some of them will be pro-Israel and they will say, could you blame Netanyahu after what happened on October 7th for deciding or for determining well, 
enough is enough now. I'm going to go in and we're going to get rid of Hamas once and for all, no matter what the cost. Yeah, there's no question that uh, uh, having experienced uh, the, it's wor- the worst attack on its territory, certainly in recent memory, if not for uh, its entire history, um, it, it's certainly reasonable to expect the, the, the uh, government to, <clears throat> to go into Gaza and try and actually target, uh, target Hamas militants. But that's not what's happening, right? When Israel first uh, started dropping bombs on Gaza, um, it, was, it was targeting uh, residential neighborhoods, civilian areas, hospitals, schools. There was no pretense even to be targeting Hamas militants. We know that something like 70% of all housing units in Gaza have been either completely or partially destroyed. You're telling me 70% of the homes in Gaza are housing Hamas militants? You're telling me 70% of homes in Gaza have Hamas tunnels under them? I mean, it's patently absurd. And we know that because the Israeli military themselves have admitted in, in, in a piece published by 972 already back in December, maybe it was November, that the goal, the target, is not Hamas. The target is the the, the, the entire civilian infrastructure. And, and that was that was based on 972 reporting from Israeli military sources who are themselves in charge of determining what the targets are in Gaza. So there's no pretense here of going after Hamas. The point of the war is to um, make Gaza unlivable. And, and we, we've known this since, since uh, late October when the Israeli military leaked uh, there, there was a leak that uh, um, that basically uh, uh, said that the the goal of the government is to expel every single last Palestinian from Gaza um, into North Sinai. So this has been, uh, you know, and, and the way you do that is by making Gaza unlivable, right? Um, so so there's no pretense here about actually trying to go after Hamas. It's, again, they're not even stating that that's the goal. I mean, we saw those comments from many Israeli political and military leaders in the first few months of the war. The goal is not precision. The goal is damage. Netanyahu himself likened all 2.2 millions in Palestinian in Gaza to Amalek. Amalek being the people the biblical Israelites were instructed to annihilate. Not just the militants, not just the adult males who are carrying arms, but every single man, woman, child in Gaza. So there's no pretense here of going after Hamas. The, um, the death toll in Gaza is horrendous, isn't it? You talked about it a moment ago. And you, you wouldn't be human if you didn't have a shiver down your spine when you think 12,000, 13,000 of the dead are children who never raised a hand in anger against anybody. Can, can you help our listeners understand, look, I will put in a few objections from time to time because I've got to represent the other side, even in the absence of the other side. But I'm not the BBC, Zach. We have as much time as we need. I'm really excited about you being on the programme because of your, of your academic background, because of your studies about the history of the region. Can you can you explain to our listeners, as best as you understand it, why the West united immediately to condemn um, what what um, Russia did or allegedly did in the Donbass region, and why the world rushed to um, condemn to sanction not just the government but to sanction Russians overseas, and yet there's no such appetite or there doesn't appear to be any such appetite to try and reign in Israel by imposing similar sanctions or using similar language. What, why, what, and you can take as long as you need to answer this. Why one rule for one and one rule for another? I mean, this is the question. Why is it the United States government, as well as the UK government and the German government and other powerful governments around the world, why is it that 
when Russia carries out these horrible atrocities and uh, goes on these killing rampages in, in Ukraine, that we're the first to condemn them, we're the first to impose sanctions, we rob their treasury. Um, and yet when Israel does all those same things, we rush to their defense. We send them uh, $14 billion in military aid on top of the $4 billion we already send them. So it's, it's, it's an incredible double standard. And it's, the reasons are, are, are very complex and very deep, but let's talk about some of them. So I think the first thing to point out here is that uh, most members of the U.S. Congress, most members of the, uh, of the administration, the, ca the War Cabinet in the United States, we're talking about baby boomers, people who grew up in the in, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, when, by the way, Israel was much less violent than it is today. If you had to plot out, uh, you know, t time on the x-axis or on the y-axis and, and violence in Israel-Palestine on the right uh, on the y-axis, it would just be up and to the right. Yeah, and and so that they're stuck in a world where Israel was not the same violent regime that it later that has become over the past few decades. Recall that it was only in 2021. Uh, in 2022, that most every major human rights organization has come out and said Israel is practicing apartheid, right? Um, so I think there's this, you know, legacy uh, uh, of a belief, I would say a false belief, that the United States has these shared values with Israel. Um, and, and again, that's partly because of the average age of, of a sitting member of the U.S. Congress, which again is in the 60s. Um, but of course, when you look at young Americans... Uh, you know, 80, first of all, 80 percent of Democrats support a ceasefire, 65 percent of overall Americans support a ceasefire, 80 percent of young Americans support a ceasefire. So the United States people, the American population itself, as well as, by the way, the population of the vast majority of the rest of the world is overwhelmingly in support of a ceasefire. So when we talk about why the United States is so pro-genocide, pro-apartheid, pro-Israel, well, let's be clear. We're talking about American baby boomers uh, elected to Congress as well as elected to the presidency. Now, so the first problem is, is this age problem and this inability to evolve one's views. The second problem is APAC, right? APAC being the pro-Israel lobby group in Washington. Just to get a sense, uh, you know, APAC is poised to spend $100 million this campaign season, in the 2024 uh, uh, campaign uh, season. Um, APAC offered $20 million to multiple potential Democratic candidates to run against Rashida Tlaib. In the in the in the Democratic primary, right? And they all said no. Uh, 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 Hill Harper said no. Um, Nasser Beydoun said no. They're not going to run against uh, uh, Rashida Tlaib. They have no interest in doing that in Michigan. But APAC is doing that literally in every single congressional seat, wherever you have uh, uh, U.S. congressional uh, representatives who are supporting the Palestinians. So this this They're is doing... the sorry Zach. This is the Palestinian American lady, Rashida Tlaib. And they offer $20 million. The question begs, because I've looked into APAC and, and the money it spends, as you said, $100 million. Where does the bulk, do we have any idea? I'm not trying to put you on the spot here. Where does the money come from? Where does APAC get that money? It's, it's through a small number of very, very wealthy donors. Most of them Jewish Americans. I imagine they also raise money from evangelical Christians, um, uh, I, I'm not entirely sure those, yeah. those disclosures are public, but um, certainly uh, th th you have a, a very wealthy uh, population in the United States that is very, very supportive of Israel, and 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 they donate to APAC, and 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 that's I, I would say. I mean, Sheldon Adelson it w was uh, a, a gigantic contributor to APAC. Uh, the late Sheldon Adelson, he recently uh, died uh, a year or two ago, um, but his wife has uh, has picked up uh, his mission of. Uh, uh, providing as much money and as much uh, support 
uh, to the state of Israel via APAC. Um, and, and you have also very, very wealthy and very powerful democratic donors um, to APAC as well. So it's, it, it is quite bipartisan, um, but, it, but it, it's primarily wealthy donors in the United States, um, many, if not most of them Jewish, many, if not most of them baby boomers. Again, we're talking about older Americans. We're not talking about young people. Um, and probably also evangelical Christians as well. But most of them would, would donate to Christians for uh, Allied for Israel. They have their own organizations. APAC raises money primarily from American Jews. Zachary Foster is our guest. Zachary is a Jewish-American historian of Palestine in the region. Uh, got his PhD at Princeton University. Um, it's good to have you on, Zachary. There's huge interest in this. Is there any way to... I suppose there isn't. How would you even begin to try and understand how Jewish Americans, and I know you've spoken eloquently about the baby boomers, the Congress people in their 60s, but you're garden variety Jewish person. Now I know some Jewish people who live in Manchester, friends of mine and people I, I work with, and they have a variety of opinions when it comes to Israel and Palestine. Um, and this is coming up now because here in the UK, some Zionist charities like the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism. They're claiming that this is a terrible time to be Jewish. You know, the Jews are being blamed for what's going on in Israel and that there has been a 1,300% increase in anti-Semitic hate crimes. And this puzzles me because, again, I know a lot of Jews and the ones I know, the Jewish people I know, they don't feel in any way threatened by, you know, some pro-Palestinian feeling in their in their workplace or in society. But I, I don't know if you've been able through your studies to get a feel for how your regular Jewish man or woman in the, the US, how they feel about this and if their views are represented at all. I think you have to differentiate here between anti-Semitic incidents, which flare up every time Israel goes on these killing rampages in Gaza, on the one hand, and structures of discrimination and oppression on the other, which affects black communities in the United States, and I'm sure many countries in Europe as well, immigrant communities in the United States and Europe, uh, uh, Muslim communities in the United States and Europe. So on the one hand, I think Jews, for the most part, are white passing in the United States. Not all. You have many, you know, 15% of American Jews are, are, are people of color. But for the most part, Jews are white passing, and so they benefit from white privilege. Um, Jews uh, um, are very well represented in media and politics and Hollywood and tech and business and finance, right? So Jews, I think it would be – you'd be very, very hard-pressed to, uh, to find a single person, a single Jewish person in the United States that has faced discrimination – um, for being Jewish. Now, of course, there are anti-Semitic incidents. Um, in fact, many of them, and in fact, whenever Israel, like I said, goes on these killing rampages in Gaza uh, in 2008-9, and that war that lasted two or three weeks, uh, it, it, you saw a rise in anti-Semitic incidents in the United States and, and France and the UK and Germany. Same was true in 2014 when Israel went on another killing rampage in Gaza, killing 1,400 innocent civilians, the vast majority of whom were um, uninvolved in, in the war at all. Um, you saw another rise, a spike in anti-Semitic incidents. And I don't think there's anything surprising about this. After the uh, Donald Trump called uh, COVID a China virus, you saw a rise in anti-Asian uh, hate. Uh, after World War II, after the United States uh, uh, was bombed by Japan in Pearl Harbor, you saw a rise in anti-Japanese hate. 
Um, you see, you saw a rise in Islamophobic hate, uh, hate against Muslims in the United States after 9-11. So there's nothing new about a group of people uh, being blamed for actions committed by uh, someone else, or maybe not even committed by someone else, merely for being associated with that group or that state or that country. And in the case of Israel, you have a country that claims to be a Jewish state, that claims to represent Jews around the world, that grants Jews around the world citizenship if they want to move to Israel, that will give them free language instruction if they move to Israel, that will give them free housing if they move to Israel, all for being Jewish. And, and you're surprised that Jews face retribution when this government goes on these killing rampages? I, I, I'm not surprised by that. But yeah, it's awful. It's horrible. I personally have faced anti-Semitism anti many times. I used to uh, wear a kippah in public. And I had, I've had i had multiple instances where people kind of, uh, uh, you know, said, made these uh, stark remarks to me in public while I was walking on the street just for wearing a kippah. So anti-Semitism is very ugly. Um, but let's not confuse anti-Semitism for a minute uh, uh, with, with all of these uh, with what is happening, uh, by the way, to Palestinian, uh, Palestinians in, in the United States, who are, by the way, facing probably an order of magnitude more hate than the Jews are. I mean, people forget this. But the violent incidents that have been taken place, we saw uh, the six-year-old boy, was it in Illinois, stabbed 20-something times. Uh, we saw a, 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 a Palestinian, and he was Palestinian. We saw a Palestinian college student in Vermont uh, now become permanently paralyzed for wearing a kafiyah in public. We saw a recent incident, I believe it was Texas, where you had a, a Palestinian wearing a kafiyah, driving away from a pro-Palestine protest, and be assaulted uh, by, uh, by someone who, who followed him after the protest. So you have multiple incidents across many, many different states of Palestinians facing grotesque violence in the United States, and yet here we are talking about the rise in anti-Semitism. So again, let, let's be clear, there's a rise in hate not just against Jews, but against Muslims, against Arabs, against Palestinians. By the way, it's it's a broader problem we're facing, uh, not just against, uh, uh, not just a as a result of this war being waged on the people of Palestine, but it's 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 a problem more generally as a result of the the, the business model of the 21st century, which is enragement equals engagement, um, and and yeah. that's just basically uh, how the world works today. And so yes, uh, anti-Semitic content is enraging, which drives engagement, which means there's more and more of it. You mentioned hate there. Can I take you on there on, on this on this point? Could could you be or could we be talking about ignorance rather than hate? Because I'm very worried, right? You know nothing about me, right? I'm um, an Irish guy who um, would would have called myself a socialist or a Bolivarian socialist for most of my life, trade unionist. Um, I don't have a prejudicial bone in my body against any group of people I never have had and I don't think I could ever have. That's how I see myself in any case. I'm very worried about the rise of terminology, the introduction to the lexicon of terminology like hate speech and and hate crimes. Um, I, I, I think they're very sinister, these terms, you know. Um, I think they're used by people, often in governments, to try and silence you know, people from expressing themselves, even if they can't express themselves as well as maybe others could. And I see them as being very Orwellian terms, Zach. Do you understand where I'm coming from with that? You know, sticks and stones may, you know, may, may break my bones. We're talking a lot these days about crimes that don't even really involve a crime. It's just something that is said, which somebody else takes offence to. By the way, I'm not endorsing, you know, somebody shouting at you when you have your kippah on, you know, calling you a yid or anything else that's repugnant. I'm not endorsing that. But I think you're a pretty shrewd, tough, 
you know, um, robust individual that you could deal with that without it being recorded as a hate crime somewhere. Tell me I'm wrong. Look, you're, you're raising a very good point, which is that we live in a world where the crime and the punishment for the crime is a function of the motive of the individual who yes. has committed the crime. I mean, just, just think about that for a second. It's not about how what they actually did. It's about what was going through their head when they did it. And, and, and that's what we're criminalizing when we criminalize uh, uh, things like hate speech. By the way, the Genocide Convention of 1948 also criminalizes the motive and the intention, right? In order for uh, the ICJ to have came to the conclusion that to, to have ordered Israel to cease genocidal acts in Gaza, they assess evidence on whether or not it was Israel's intention, whether they were assessing whether or not the thoughts going through the heads of Israeli political and military leaders, which they can obviously, which they have things like the statements they make to, to, to use as evidence. But that is a very, you know, and look, that, and that's important to point out that like that is the world we live in. Now, I think the, the reasons are quite obvious. After having, you know, gone through, you know, decades, if not centuries, in which people were in fact targeted because of who they were, right? Black Americans were enslaved, not because of what they, not because of any actions they, they, they did, but because of who they were but because of the color of their skin. Yeah. And so for, for, for many centuries, I think this is, this is the legacy that we're dealing with, which is trying to kind of compensate for these crimes of the past. And the way we do that is by criminalizing the intention and the motive that goes behind the, 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 the sort of behind the crime. But yeah, you're right. It's a great point. And I'd love at some stage in the future, if you were up for it, just to have a nice, you know, proper debate. I mean, you'll have had plenty of debates at Princeton, but debates are sadly becoming a thing of the past because people who disagree are being, I think, being conditioned to despise one another only because they disagree on geopolitics or whatever. But I'm I'm not having white privilege, Zach, so I'd love to have you back at some stage. I think we'd have a great discussion on white privilege. I'm 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 concerned by the term. I understand where it comes from and the context you used it but I'm, I'm not too sure about it. Listen, I'm delighted you're on. There's a few things I'd like to discuss between now and um, the end of the conversation, which I'm going to leave up to you because I'm guessing you're a busy man. But there's, there are a few things we need to talk. I'd like to go back to what's happening in, in Gaza. Listen, a guy from um, the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, which is a group of people I don't really like very much uh, here in the UK. I know they're funded by the State of Israel and they purport to look out for... Jewish people's rights and they, they purport, they claim to look out for anti-Semitism, but I don't think they do. I think they spend most of their time trying to destroy people who uh, criticise, you know, the state of Israel or or Zionism. And one of their, one of their stalwarts, a guy called Stephen Silverman, he reckons that when, pe when people come on programmes like mine and they attempt to draw a distinction between Zionism and Jewishness, he reckons that's complete nonsense, that the two intertwine, that Zionism and Jewishness must be relatable because the the, the philosophy of, of Zionism is a permanent homeland, a state for the Jewish people. Now, it's not how I see things. How do you see that, that argument? I think my view is that <clears throat> um, you can be uh, you can be Jewish and anti-Zionist, you can be Jewish and Zionist, you can be non-Jewish and anti-Zionist uh, and non-Jewish and, and Zionist, right? These are not, 
Judaism is a religion that dates to the ancient world. We're talking thousands of years of, of Jewish history, thousands of years of Jews practicing Judaism without ever having even the, the, the thought occurred to them that they should go and establish a secular Jewish state in a land that was 90% non-Jewish. That, that thought didn't even occur to them. In fact, for most of Jewish history, you would have been called a heretic and excommunicated from the Jewish community for proposing to establish a secular Jewish polity in the land of Israel for the simple reason that for most of Jewish history, the overwhelming majority of the rabbinical establishment was halachically opposed to moving Jews to Israel based on the belief that these eschatological beliefs that at the end of times, the Mashiach will come, the Messiah will return to planet Earth, and all the Jews will gather in the land of Israel, and there will be some kind of, you know, paradise, and, you know, we'll all live happily ever after. But, but, key point here, if a Jew proactively tries to pull that future forward, if a Jew tries to behave godly, act in a godly way, do what only God is allowed to do, which is bring about that future messianic era through the actions of humans, if a Jew goes about doing that, they are committing one of the greatest sins in Judaism, which is doing something that only God is allowed to do, is behaving in a godlike way. Um, so, so in fact, you know, uh, for, for most of Jewish history, the entire concept of, of Zionism would have been anti-Jewish. It would have been anti-Halachic. Um, so that's the first point to make. And then uh, the second point to make is that many of, of, of Zionism's greatest proponents uh, have been some of the most anti-Semitic people in all, of, in all of history, right? I mean, go back to the 19th century. You know, you had a Hungarian politician. His name was Istotsky, okay? He, in 1878, called for the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. By the way, fun fact for you, he also proposed expelling the Jews from out of Hungary because the Jews were filthy and because, the, in his view, and because the Jews were corrupting Hungary at the time. Um, and, and he also, by the way, became the spokesperson for the anti-Semitic movement in Hungary, uh, which was responsible for many pogroms against Jews. And I'm not, Istosi was not unique in any sense. The same was true of many, many uh, European 19th century anti-Semites. William Marr, by the way, who was the guy who popularized the term anti-Semitism in 1881, he also was one of Europe's greatest anti-Semites. Again, for the same reason. We want to get the Jews out of Europe because we think the Jews are filthy and they're money-grubbing and, and they're, they're controlling Europe, so we want to get rid of them. Um, this was the view at the time among these raging European anti-Semites, and of course, many of them were attracted to Zionism, right? And then, I mean, the most famous Zionist of all, Arthur Balfour, responsible for the Balfour Declaration, when he was the Prime Minister of Britain in 1905, he passed the Aliens Act, which was a, a which is legislation that placed restrictions on Jewish immigration to Britain at a time when Jews were being slaughtered in Eastern Europe in the thousands in pogroms. And he said, oh, you're being slaughtered in Eastern Europe? Well, guess what? Britain is closed to you. He was one of the world's greatest anti-Semites at the time and also doubles as the most famous Zionist, non-Jewish Zionist in all of human history. So these are just a few examples. But this is the fundamental uh, problem with what you're saying, which is that you can be Jewish and be anti-Zionist. Uh, anti you can be uh, uh, very, very anti-Jewish and, and be you know, a, a famous uh, Zionist. Tell me this, uh, Zach. Look, I, I, I'm going to read you a few comments from our listeners, right? This is a live and interactive radio show. 
um, with a massive listenership. I'm not bragging when I say that. There is. We have hundreds of comments coming in. But just to remind our listener, listeners, uh, Zach Foster is a Jewish-American historian, an expert in the affairs of the Middle East and the history of Palestine and Israel. Zach says that he himself was a Zionist until he started studying Palestine and the history of the Jewish people, the history of the Palestinians. He earned his PhD in Near Eastern Studies from Princeton University and it's fascinating to have um, him on the programme. So many questions coming in, right? Um, look, here, here's one that you might expect if you were watching an episode of The Simpsons, right? This is, is going to sound a bit childish and a bit silly and maybe one of those where you might need five episodes to answer. Um, I've had Shlomo Zand on my programmes a few times over the years. You know who Shlomo is. And he, he's in France these days, I believe. He's a, an academic, a historian. And he's questioned the diaspora narrative, you know, the idea that Jews existed in the region. So here's the stupid question for you, my friend, my new academic friend. Um, which people were there first? Isn't that a crazy, stupid, simplistic question to ask somebody like you? Um, but in, in your studies, in your writings, the thesis, the dissertations you've written, um, which group of people, if any, have a legitimate claim historically to, to the land, to being there? Can you even answer that? Well, I think humans, uh, uh, Homo sapiens first populated the Near East. Uh, I believe the evidence uh, suggests that we're talking about a human settlement in the ancient Near East, in what is today Israel Palestine, going back uh, the Natufians, I believe. So may maybe we should all be kind of pro, pro for you know uh, Natufian yeah. uh, uh, national independence <laughs> if we want to go back. Yeah. But of course, they weren't the first ones either because we have evidence of Homo sapiens in Palestine get going back ninety thousand years. Uh, maybe we should figure out what people they belong to and give them yeah. uh, a nation state in Israel Palestine. I think the the, the underlying the question is, is belief that if you are a nation. Um, then you have a right to a state, okay? So that, that, that is kind of underlying the belief here that which nation was in Palestine first? Um, well, uh, you know, guess what? The Israelites conquered pa uh, Palestine from the Canaanites. I mean, so, so like, sh should we be calling for a Canaanite uh, nation state in Palestine? Um, maybe the Moabites, maybe we should try and find some Moabites and give them a nation state in Palestine. This idea that, you know, whoever was there, quote unquote, first, is the one that has the right to a state yeah. and no other peoples in that land have a, have a right to a state. By the way, that's not how international law works. No. Okay. Um, you know, it, it, international law is, it, 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 it is, is the result of many decades, many centuries, really, of, uh, of kind of consensus, of treaties, um, and, and of a, accepted norms and rules. Um, and, and so if you want to ask yourself, yeah, who has legitimate right to a state in Palestine? Well, I think you could go back to the, the 47 partition plan. Um, maybe that, that one might be the, the best place to start if you really want to uh, talk about kind of who, what nations have rights to states in Palestine. And according to the partition plan, it was very clear, right? Jews, both the Jews uh, and the Palestinians uh, ha have rights to states in Palestine. Um, and over the past 75 years, the Jews, the, 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 you know, the Zionist community in Palestine has been on a 75 year campaign to, to deny Palestinians that right. That's about what, because what, I'm a history graduate, by the way, you don't know this, but it's pretty much what I would have said. Um, and yes, of course, every square 
kilometre or mile of land on planet Earth has been disputed a million times over. Battles have raged. Treaties have been signed. You're absolutely right to say this, 100%. But you think historically the last 75 years is about the most important um, period of the overall history because of what has happened to uh, the people of Palestine in in that time. Zach, what's going to happen? I mean, you've got the Labour Party here. It's likely to form the next government in the UK. I'm not sure it means anything in terms of a solution to um, to Palestine and Israel. But they're saying, you know, we must have a two-state solution. The current Prime Minister of Israel, I think we all know he won't be the Prime Minister for very long, Benjamin Netanyahu. He's saying, not a chance, there won't be any two-state solution. Where and how does this end, do you think, in the future? I wish I had uh, an optimistic report to share, but what I see happening is is not a future that re- results in two states. What I see is um, a forever war. I think the Netany- Netanyahu realizes that uh, as soon as the war ends, that he will be voted out of office. He will face corruption charges, uh, breach of public trust charges, and bribery charges. And he will also face uh, an investigation around how it, how Hamas was able to um, commit this atrocity on October 7th, how it was that his government was so distracted with settlement expansion in the West Bank uh, that he let his guard down and allowed uh, 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 Hamas to carry out the... the the, the worst massacre on his uh, of Jews of Israelis on, on Israeli territory in its history. Zach, so my, how, how, Zach, Zach, a thousand apologies. May I stop you there? The reason I'm stopping please. you is because I've had a number of emails from listeners about this. I could name them. Um, look, this is a free speech platform. We talk about everything on this program, right? Without without dealing in absolutes, because I don't know what did or what didn't happen. But I know that a lot of Israelis, and I again, these people are on Twitter, and they are verifiable, these people. They do not believe um, that the Israeli Defence Force and the government could have been caught so badly on October 7th. And the Times of Israel has done some decent work. Like, it reported that the, the, the watchers most of whom are women, you know, told their superiors that they knew something big was coming, that they could see the mobilisation of the Hamas militants or terrorists, whatever you want to call them, on the other side of the fence. And they were warned that they would be court-martialed if they didn't shut up. There are talks about the Egyptian intelligence sharing information with Israel. So the conspiracy theory, if you want to call it that, is that um, an attack by Hamas in southern Israel certainly suited the Netanyahu administration. So you know that British politicians have basically lost their jobs in recent days because they've raised the the possibility. Like they've said, well, maybe Israel turned a blind eye and, and allowed it to happen. Now, I'm not saying I believe that, Zach, because I do not know what happened. And I don't endorse anything unless I have 100% proof. But a lot of our listeners are asking for your thoughts on that. Could such an evil thing occur where a government... And an army says, you know what, it might suit us, it might suit our policy for, for Gaza if um, if something happens. Or is that just so unimaginable to be risible? What do you think? Well, the, the story that I think is quite plausible is that you have a, a military and a, 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 a chain of command in which men are in charge of all the important positions 
in which women are uh, occupy the least important positions and in which men basically um you know see themselves as uh uh, uh you know um basically the ones who are more competent and see the women as incompetent i mean is it so hard to believe that you know the israeli uh, uh you know chain of command is chauvinist and is yeah. uh, i think that's pretty I, I think that's almost obvious um i mean have you met israeli men no have you been around like israeli military officials the chauvinism and the arrogance i mean that story to me like checks out so I, I don't know why people are going around looking for kind of you know conspiracy theory explanations here. Um, I mean the, the story itself is 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 very obvious. It's that you have an Israeli government hell bent on settlement expansion, and seventy five percent of the Israeli military was deployed not in, not around Gaza but around in, in the West Bank. Right, that we know that the Israeli government, led by Smotrich, led by Ben Gvir, led by Netanyahu, is absolutely obsessed with controlling every last inch of the West Bank. But Gaza? They don't care about Gaza. Lock them up, throw away the key, and forget about them. I mean, that was the attitude. So, it, you know, you don't need to go looking for conspiracy theory explanations to understand how this happened. This happened because the government was totally uninterested in Gaza. And in fact, they got plenty of signals from the Hamas government over the past two to three years that Hamas was interested in just kind of normalizing the permanent blockade and siege that Israel had imposed on it, right? Go back to 2021 war. Who were, who, what group fired rockets at Israel in May 2021? It was not Hamas. It was Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Hamas stayed on the sidelines. What group, by the way, uh, um, was in charge of getting 20,000 Israeli work permits for the people of Gaza in the, in the year prior to October 7th? It was Hamas. And the way it did that was be by showing its sort of moderating tone, by you know staying out of the 2021 war, by trying to you know not escalate when whenever there'd be border clashes, as there were even in September 2023, a month before the attack. So I think you don't need to go looking for explanations. I think the I think it's very obvious that Israel and the Israeli military and the Israeli security cabinet was totally obsessed with the West Bank and totally uninterested in Gaza. And even, just before I ask my final question today, even the six-hour response time, I mean, they did take a long time to react, didn't they? Well, look, I, I think that that just speaks to the military uh, 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 success of Hamas. I mean, they, this was truly, I mean, an attack that required a tremendous amount of planning. They took out, you know, the security cameras on almost every single installation along that border fence. They broke through something like a dozen or two dozen in different places on the wall. I mean, it was an incredibly um, successful military uh, operation from the Hamas perspective. Um, I, I don't think you should sell them short for that. I think this was an incredibly well-planned attack. Um, you know that, that uh, you know I, th I think by 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 uh, you know saying otherwise, you're just selling them short. Fair enough. And, and finally on that, before I do ask my final question, what about claims that, you know, the IDF, that friendly fire might have accounted for some deaths, particularly at the festival? Um, again, this is coming from some Israelis, amazingly enough. Do you give any credence to any of those claims? Oh, oh we have confirmation of that. I mean, the, the, there's been confirmation. Uh, you had an Israeli witness. So, so the one incident, incident where we, were, we, we can be 100% certain that the Israeli military killed its own uh, was in Kibbutz Be'eri on October 7th. You have, uh, what, what was her name now? Um, you had an Israeli uh, eyewitness, basically, and, and this, this audio surfaced 
already in October, shortly after it was like mid-October, the Electronic Intifada published a uh, an English translation, a, a transcript of this interview uh, in of an Israeli. I forget her name now, but she said that she was in. She was scared out of her mind. The Israeli uh, tanks were firing tank shells at homes in which there were both Palestinian militants and Israeli hostages. We have confirmation of that. We don't yeah. need to guesswork is not needed. And then, I mean, the, the only real question is how many of the Israeli civilians were, were killed by Hamas? We know uh, perhaps a, a half dozen to a dozen were killed by, excuse me, by, by the Israeli military. We know something like five to, to 10 were killed by the Israeli military. The question is how many more? And I think that is the investigation that Israel does not want to, uh, to, uh, does not want to happen. But we know that if you look at the, um, many of the of much of the footage that came out of the Israeli towns and kibbutzim on the, on the border, um, you have these homes that are just absolutely obliterated, right? Entire walls decimated. Hamas didn't have the firepower to do that. No, it was the Apache helicopters and it was the Israeli tanks that were roaming around these Israeli towns, firing indiscriminately, obviously trying to target the, the Hamas militants, but of course killing many Israelis along the way. And then on top of that, we know the Apache helicopters were firing indiscriminately, uh, you know, at, uh, at, at, at Israelis at the, uh, you know, uh, on the ground. There is, um, um... And, and we, and we have, we have reports that there was a mass Hannibal uh, uh, order issued, which is basically an order uh, that is very rarely uh, 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 used by the Israeli military. But it was there was a mass Hannibal order that was issued on October seventh that says, "Better to be killed than to be captured." I was going to ask, it, it, you know, that was that was so, that was my next question. Yeah, it's a long-standing policy, isn't it? And um, Patricia is listening to this in Zurich. Isn't it worth mentioning that ninety-eight percent of the Israelis who are you know, brutalizing Palestinians now are Eastern European Jews and not necessarily religious Jews. That's from Patricia. What do you think of that? I'm sorry, the question is, um, why? That, that, can you just repeat the question? Yeah, she says, is it worth mentioning that um, the majority of Israelis now brutalizing Palestinians, asks Patricia, are they not Eastern European Jews um, is that not their lineage? And they're not—they're not biblical Jews, essentially. They're not—they're not religious Jews. What do you think? Gotcha. Well, look, I, I would be careful when trying to draw conclusions around uh, the ethnicity, the ethnic background of any particular Israeli Jew on the one hand, and their political views on the other. Uh, you will probably know that many, if not most, I mean, the most right-wing Israelis tend to be Israelis from Muslim and Arab countries, the Mizrahi population. They dominate the ranks of Likud. You know, um, they're some of the most right-wing Israelis around. So I, I would be very careful Fair in trying enough. to, uh, I mean, but yeah, if the broader point is that most Israelis are, let's say, uh, you know, a very significant percentage of Israelis have Eastern European origins. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's not really news to anybody. That, that's because Israel was established by Eastern European Jews and, and Western European Jews as a settler colonial state fleeing the pogroms. in Palestine. Yeah, fleeing the yeah. pogroms. My, my final question for you today, and it is absolutely my final question this time, Zach, I'm teasing um, you. You might have a cup of coffee or something on the go there. Listen, final question. Um, and when you do answer this, um, please let us know about the YouTube channel and where to find you online. I'll put all the links on the podcast notes, of course. Uh, this is not necessarily to do with Israel. I and pretty much every other independent journalist in this country today has been talking about Julian Assange 
Um, it's getting very serious for him now, today and tomorrow. His um, appeal against his extradition, the British Home Secretary at the time was Priti Patel. She signed his extradition order so that he would be sent to America where he faces espionage charges. Um, you know, most decent people, I think, are pretty horrified by his plight as an academic, as a researcher and as a journalist yourself. Have you got any thoughts on what's happening to Julian Assange? That, that that's a very fair question look I, I i my general view here is that there is so much hidden from public view you know the u.s government the uk government the um the the amount they hid from us after 9 11 where they're basically tapping every single uh, phone line every single uh, conversation every american has i mean this is you know th this was totally unacceptable um you know the, in the case of assange it may well have been the case that there were names that were leaked that jeopardized the the safety of certain individuals acting in you know capacities and in, in, in for, for certain spy agencies. Like I don't want to speak to whatever blood he may have in his hands. But the general problem that we have in the United States and in Western Europe is that our governments are responsible for some of the most um, you know horrific acts of violence around the world. Now the United States is and the United K the UK is directly implicated in in a genocide. Um, and 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 anything people do people can do uh, uh, to, to expose some of these crimes that are being committed by leaking documents, um, uh, I would say is generally a good thing as long as you're not as long as you're not doing anything to compromise the safety of particular individuals whose names are uh, uh, you know leaked in some of these documents. I think you have to be very careful when you do that. You don't want to implicate yourself in, 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 in leading to the loss of innocent life. Um, while at the same time I do support generally speaking uh, the rights of, of citizens to know what their government is doing. Which is what he would argue was exactly what he was doing, releasing those videos. And but, but I hear you, Zach. It's been um, an education, and it's been um, really interesting having you on. Where can people go to find you online? Let us know, please. Yeah, so you can uh, follow me on Twitter underscore Zach Foster, and you can subscribe to my newsletter, which is called Palestine in Your Inbox. You can subscribe to that newsletter at PalestineNexus.com. Zach, thanks for, so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, I'd, I'd like to do it again in the future. I'd like to get into white privilege with you. I think we'd have a good ding dong, as we say in these parts, a good back and forth. But it was nice to meet you today. Thanks for your time, Zach. Thanks so much for having me. It was an honour. Thank you, Zach Foster, Zachary Foster, live on the programme from New York City. It's 16 minutes past the hour. It's uh, Richie. It's the Richie Allen Show for Tuesday, the 20th of February, 2024, that's right. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Yeah, and thanks for all of your messages and comments during that. I really appreciate them. Um, try and keep them to about a paragraph long, will you? If you don't mind. Some of you, you send me essays and I can't read them because they're essays. You know, the whole point of the app and the message thing is kind of think of it like Twitter. Just send me a quick comment, an abbreviated comment if you can. Tim says, I can't get my head around virtuous calls for a ceasefire from those who stood by when possibly 100,000 dead or buried Palestinian souls and 80% of Gaza has already been destroyed with their blessing. Well, the Palestinian Authority or the Palestinian Health Ministry is claiming 
that it's close to 40,000 civilians dead now, about 15,000 children. That's what they're saying. And when you say that out loud, it's unimaginable. It's abominable, isn't it? I'm going to take a tune. When I come back, I will read some of your comments and then we might talk about something else. Tuesday's programme. As I said, your BBG live from Salford. Here's music from George Michael. George Michael. Yeah, music from George Michael. That's flawless on the Richie Allen Show. It's uh, coming up for 22 minutes past the hour of five o'clock. Nice fella, Zachary uh, Foster. And he, he has accepted my invitation to come on the programme to discuss white privilege. I'm very interested in this. I, I invited one or two people in the last couple of years, um, more than a couple of years, to come on the programme and to debate these issues with me. And pretty much to a man and woman, they declined. Now, the people I invited on were the most vocal including a guy called Kehinde Andrews, who's a black uh, British guy. I think his ancestry might be in the Caribbean. He's, uh, he, he works at a, at a university or a college in Birmingham, and he's all about white privilege, and I invited him on, he wouldn't come on to speak with me. It's a very complex thing. I'd, I'd like your thoughts on it. I think we can discuss this uh, for the remainder of... Uh, the programme, the remainder of my time on air this afternoon, this notion of white privilege. You know what I'm going to do, because I didn't do it? Um, I'm going to grab a dictionary definition of white privilege. And while I do that, let's um, have a listen to a very funny clip, which um, comes from the Irish Shannad, the Senate. No, it doesn't. It comes from the Dáil, from Dáil Éireann, uh, the Irish Parliament, from Catherine Murphy, TD, from Ireland's Social Democrats Party and had something very funny to say about white privilege in the Doyle, uh, the Doyle even, back in, it, it's December I think she said this, have a listen and it, it could be January but I think it was December, listen to this about white privilege. While it's true that the Irish have known uh, a fair share of, of oppression, the reality is uh, during that oppression we still maintained our, our invisibility cloak of white privilege. And we often hear about white privilege and it hadn't really occurred to me that I had white privilege as well, but now listening to you I understand that I do have a privilege. I think we shouldn't forget that our parliament still looks very male, very stale and pale. Of course you can say that you're a middle class white man. So you view the law completely different to somebody who is a traveller. These are all different politicians now, Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil, right? To somebody who <laughs> is uneducated, to somebody You're who... You're a middle-class, stale, white male, you bastard. He's maybe a member of the Roma community. So it is very, very different. You know that the law doesn't treat you the same. It doesn't treat you the same. Well, you, as a white privileged man, how does my debt impact your life? I think it's worth putting on the record of, of this House um, that, that concept of, of white privilege and, and how that can be uh, normatised in our own lives. And she's, she's Fine Gael, normatised. And, you know, we, we as... as they're, they're in government. As we develop as a society and a more racially integrated society, I think need to become more and more conscious of that uh, within our own politics and, and the advantage that that has brought, but the corollary being that your whiteness is itself an advantage and to really understand that. I often... So, so is it a more complex issue? Than, than, than just saying it's a load of bollocks because the temptation is and obviously when I debate somebody uh, I'm not going to say it's a load of bollocks I'm going to try and apply some context to the, to the claim, right? So let's, what, what, what's the dictionary definition? Well, Oxford Dictionary says inherent advantages 
possessed by a white person on the basis of their race in a in a society characterized by racial inequality and injustice can you can, can you unpick that i probably can i think that's the first time in years that my phone has gone off <laughs> during a live program I forgot to mute it. There you are. I don't ordinarily make that mistake. So, inherent advantages possessed by a white person on the basis of their race in a society characterised by racial inequality and injustice. Right. I'll be the first to acknowledge that I do benefit from white privilege. That's not me now. This is the example given in the in the Oxford Dictionary. What are your thoughts on it? So it's more complex than simply, what a load of bollocks, because that's the temptation, right? Because you get tired of it, of this nonsense. But is there some truth to it? Is there some truth to the claim that in certain Western democracies, that you do have an advantage by the nature of the fact that you are white, is that you do inherently have advantages, that you have benefits from being white, is that you are viewed differently um, by society and by the pillars of society, justice, right? Justice being obviously a very important one. Will you have a different outcome? Are you more likely to have a different outcome when you go, well, when you present yourself in a court of law because of your whiteness than somebody who is from a minority ethnic background? These are the questions. And um, I'm going to get into this. I'll get into it now, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, for a few minutes, I don't know. Um, I suppose the, the point is that everybody approaches a subject like this um, from a very insular, you know, well, from a position. Yeah, from, a, from, from an insular position. Like you look at yourself and you look at your own experiences and you say, well, I didn't have any feckin' privilege. I grew up in a you know, working class council estate and most of the time we were lucky to have a dinner. Now, in my case, this is true. While my so-called father, worked at Waterford Crystal, where they, you know, where the weekly wage was a little bit above average. It didn't matter. You know, we lived in a working class council estate and there there was very little. You know, we didn't have very much growing up. So every, everybody looks at it from their own point of view. But should you be broadening it out and forget about your own, forget about your own um, um, experiences and your own background? And should you be able to look at it from a with a broader with a broader lens, a wider lens? And could you say, could you could you have a hard look at yourself and say, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe there is some truth to the to to, to the notion that you do benefit somehow. Now, what's really interesting about this is there's so many strands of this. Is that it's really funny to hear Irish politicians talk about it in a country that was until recently. About, and I don't know what the statistics are, so I'm talking, I'm on the hoof here, right? But, but Ireland would have been a society that was pretty much white. So, claiming that an Irish person benefits from white privilege in a country that is pretty much, or was until recently, pretty much almost exclusively white, is, is almost like, it's a non-starter, isn't it? You, you, you benefit from white privilege. Well, hang on a second, I live in Ireland. <laughs> and I've always lived here and pretty much everybody else is white, white Irish. So how do I have white privilege? I suppose they, 
with, with the advent of, of, of mass migration or immigration, we, we did see the introduction to public discourse of terms like this. You know, you've got to be aware of your white privilege when speaking with somebody, when dealing with somebody, when interacting with somebody. You've got to be aware of your white privilege. You've got to be aware of your advantage over them and all of that. But um, it's, it's, it's interesting. The messages are flying in already. Pamela says, as a white woman, having been brought up in an essentially poor working class town in the north of England, I can honestly say we never experienced any white privilege. We were all the same, all struggling to get by. And again, Pamela would have been largely surrounded by uh, white people, people who, who look like her. But if, if you can leave the individual experiences aside, you know, because most of us grew up, as I said, without having very much and certainly didn't feel privileged. Could you, could you honestly say, um, could you state for a fact that in 2023, in 2024, that you do not believe that you receive better outcomes um, inherently because of the fact that you are white, better outcomes than people of a minority background? Again, let's just talk about the law. Do you think it's ridiculous? Do you think it's impossible that white people um, do better in court, charged with the same crime as somebody from a minority background? What are the statistics on, on this? You know, I don't have them to hand. But people who advocate for white privilege, people who say that, that it's a real thing, and that it is a problem, you know, the people who talk about microaggressions and stuff and, you know, that we all need to learn how to deal with people, how to interact with people of colour, you know, because we have a privilege over them. Um, they say that there is evidence that minorities do worse. They, they are worse off. They get paid less for doing the same jobs, okay? They don't get the same um, opportunities as we do because of the fact they are minorities and again just to say to say it again because it's important they have worse outcomes when they go to court now i used to be somebody who spent a lot of time and most of his pocket money as a teenager uh, working with groups who sought to make capital punishment in the united states illegal we failed right but we were idealistic and we did this and i knew a lot about it at one time and I found out, for example, that in Florida, and this was a fact now, this isn't some woke nonsense, this is a fact, that black people were six times more likely to be sentenced to death in Florida than white people. Now, tell me that if you were white in Florida and you were a career criminal and a murderer, that you didn't enjoy some sort of white privilege. You know, if a black dude was six times more likely to go to the electric chair for committing the same crime as as you. You see, you couldn't convince me. I like to keep an open mind about these things. You couldn't convince me that white privilege wasn't in, in action in, in that circumstance, in those circumstances. Six times. That's a fact. Look it up if you don't believe me. Six times more likely to be sentenced to death by juries, most of whom were... Where, where white people, it must be said. So it's a complex one, really. Like when we listen to a conservative news radio and they bang on about this all the time because it sells 
you know, it generates clicks and it generates retweets and it generates likes because the culture wars are brilliant. Everybody loves them. We all get wrapped up in them, in the culture wars. And while we do, while we do, and while we argue and bicker over issues around race and gender and identity, of course, the Great Reset goes on. But it, it doesn't make it any less interesting. The concept, are you better off being white? There you are. It took me a long time to say it. Are you better off being white than being black? You know, could you even possibly begin to study that? Like to have a real look at it from every possible angle. Education, employment, the criminal justice system. Are you better off having white skin? And, um, you know, being what you might... I don't think such a thing exists. Well, it does. It does. Ethnically English or ethnically Irish. Are you better off? What do you think? Let me know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And I'd love to get into it. Like I said, I've invited the proponents of white privilege, um, critical race uh, theory on the programme to discuss it. And to a man and woman, they told me basically to fake off. Uh, we don't talk to bigots, because I'm a bigot apparently. I'm a bigot because I facilitate discussions about everything on this programme. You know, including p people who might be considered anti-Semitic. So I'm a bigot. But they won't come on. This Kehinde Andrews, I really wanted to get my claws, my claws, my hooks into him. You know, but um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Anne has been in touch. Good evening, Anne. It seems to me, Richie, that from the definition you read out, it is nothing more than discrimination on behalf of the judge or whoever. We don't need a new definition of discrimination, says Anne. Ian says, regarding the death sentencing statistics in Florida, what if that isn't privilege in favour of the white criminal, but just good old-fashioned racism against the black criminal? White privilege is nonsense. But Ian, but Ian, you've just defined white privilege. You could argue. I'm going to argue with my listeners today for the crack. You could argue that what you've said is actually basically an admission of or acknowledgement of white privileged, white privilege even. Because obviously there are more white people than black people in Florida, right? In fact, there are more white people than black people in pretty much every state in the United States. And if blacks are sentenced more harshly than whites for certain crimes or for all crimes, well then, surely the white people living in that state or town, they must enjoy a privilege of sorts. You know what I'm saying? And listen, don't lose your shit now. I'm not going woke here. I know these are the issues used, as I said already, to divide us, to have us screaming at one another, you know, and dividing ourselves into more and more bizarre and exotic identity groups so that we can all claim to be the most vulnerable and the most put upon, the most downtrodden. I mean, that's what people are doing these days. They're arguing on Twitter about who's the most disadvantaged and what have you. I get it, I get it. It is, it is a tool of the elite whatever you want to call the elite. But it doesn't make it any less fascinating to me. Is there some truth to it that you're better off to be born white? In the UK in 2024, if you shuffle off this mortal coil, and if reincarnation is a thing, are you better off being spat out of a vagina on your next go-round? Sorry for the crudeness of that. Are you better off being white? Have you got a better chance? You're going to kill me, aren't you? You, you don't like this. David says, so the government says we should bring in low-skilled workers to fill the gaps, uh, the skills gaps. This is David in Bournemouth. 
the government says we should bring in low-skilled workers to fill the skills gaps, and now we have white privilege because they don't earn as much. That was the deal, says David. That's an interesting take, David. Andy Elliott says, Richie, my stepdaughter married a black gentleman and has three kids with him. The white man didn't get a look in, says Andy. Once you go black, you'll never go back, Andy. So your stepdaughter fancied black men. That's not completely uncommon. Um, and and it's not that strange. She had a preference for black gentlemen. Fair enough. Um, I don't quite get your point, Andy. But yeah, fair fair enough. Gaz says Peterborough. This is Gaz Bob. Peterborough is shocking. I've never been racist, but this town is mostly black and Asian now. I don't care what the statistics say. My family has left all of them, and we'll be leaving in time. Whites get nothing here, says Gaz Bob. Now, obviously, the demographic makeup of towns and cities is changing. And this is not an ongoing thing. Again, you're listening to The Richie Allen Show. And I'm not bragging. It's about the only properly 100% free speech zone on British radio. I mean, it is, right? Talk about everything. Forget your truth or industrial complex bloody podcasts. They're only interested in navel-gazing and speaking to people with whom they agree. They never have people on they don't agree with, whereas that's not the case here. We'll talk about everything here, right? Absolutely. So I'm telling you, yes, the the elites are dividing and conquering Western democracies. We don't live in a democracy. Western countries through open-door migration policies. Of course they are. It's one of their greatest weapons. How do we stop those bastards waking up to the Great Reset? and to Agenda 2030, and the transhumanist society we want to build. Well, let's get them fighting each other. Yes, of course. I know. Don't we talk it to death on this programme? But, as... I had a very interesting conversation with Jana London on this programme some weeks ago, the American lady living in Ireland. And we talked about the fact that, while it's obviously divide and conquer, it doesn't mean that the issues themselves are not relevant to the people who are dealing with them. So we know that the trans bollocks and the identity, the, the, the gender stuff, we know it's classic divide and conquer. But it has a real world impact on children, on the minds of children, and on the outcomes for biological women. You see, so I said to my great friend Jean Ann Crowley, this is paradoxical. Because on the one hand, yes, look, it's what they do, the fuckers. They divide us. But on the other hand, it really impacts upon people. So the white privilege and Black Lives Matter and all of that old bollocks, right? Yes, it's divide and conquer. But it, does it have an impact on people? Despite the fact that it's smoke and mirrors for the most part, you know? Ask the question. Honestly, are you better off being white in Britain in 2024? I wonder. I'm not decided. I'm not decided yet. Because I'm open to, I'm really open-minded to this, you know? Are you better off? What do you reckon? Let me know. Jackie is listening. Richie, I was going to say the same as Anne said. I think privilege is the wrong concept, says Jackie. I don't think whites have privileges. Rich people do, says Jackie. But I believe the discrimination still exists, and white people are much less victim of discrimination. So yes, in this sense, I do believe white people are at an advantage, but I wouldn't call it a privilege, says Jackie. That's a well thought out comment. Jackie, very well thought out. 
Because nothing is black and white, no pun intended. Nothing is... You can't reduce complex issues into a few simple absolutes. So when when we talked about, on this programme, five, six, seven years ago, when we first started to hear things like unconscious bias, remember that. Remember that. And companies were bringing in training co- courses for people, for white people, mostly for white people, to, to, to check their unconscious bias, telling people that whether you like it or not, you must have some inherent, some hardwired biases against people who don't look and sound like you. And at the time I dismissed it as monumental bollocks. I still do, because I don't believe I myself possess any unconscious bias. I have some biases, and I'm pretty conscious of them. Thank you very much. Right? And I talked about this on a podcast once. I can't remember. Somebody invited me on a podcast and asked me, did it, what were my conscious biases? And I talked about when I was at university in Salford years ago, I worked for a little time at a motor insurance company provider answering the phones with me big Irish accent on me. It was actually Direct Line I worked for. Good morning, Direct Line. Richie speaking. Richie, I'd like a quote, please, from my Austin Allegra. And I'd be like, don't insure it, scrap the fucking thing, right? It's, uh, no, I wouldn't say that. I would give them a quote. And we, we, we would chat away. Now, I was a member of a team. And there was a man on the team. And his name was Brian. And God love me, he wasn't a bad lad at all. But he was the most outrageous screaming queen. Screaming queen. Now, I had a very conscious bias against Brian. <laughs> you know, I couldn't listen to him. So I eventually said, look, I want, put me on another team. At the time, you could say such things. Uh, in 2024, I'd probably be fired for saying it. In, twen- in, in, in 2004, the sensible lady who ran the team, she said, yeah, he's a bit much, isn't he, Brian? I mean, he was Graham Norton multiplied by Alan Carr divided by Paul O'Grady. I mean, he was an absolute pain in the fucking arse. He was an all right lad, no pun intended. He was an all right lad, but he was a screaming queen, incredibly effeminate, very loud, and I'm being loud now, and sometimes he would talk graphically about his weekend sexual encounters. So I would have a very conscious bias against, against screaming queens, not against gay men and women. But I don't like screaming queens. I don't have any unconscious bias. But then I had a, an email from an academic one night, and she wouldn't come on. Emailed me, loved the show, but I'm not coming on. And said, you do have hardwired biases, Richie, whether you like it or not. You do. And she, I read this out at the time. I read the entire email out on air. I don't have access to it now. But she made an interesting argument about how we do like it or lump it. And again, to, to mention my thespian pal, Jean Anne. Jean Anne said to me at one time, familiarity breeds content, she said. We were talking about the difficulties of, imagine a senior deaf person with a little bit of dementia, maybe. And the senior deaf person with dementia is living in a care home, residential. And if the people working at the care home are low-paid workers, maybe from East Africa, maybe from Central Asia, they've come to the UK for work, and they've got, you know, strong accents. Um, You can talk baldy. I know, I know. But most British people do not have any issues understanding me. 
and we talked about this and I talked to Jean Anne about this, is it racist, is it biased unconsciously or otherwise to be complaining about the person who's looking after your great grandmother with a maybe thick African accent? Um, no, and Jean Anne said familiarity breeds content. So is that hardwired into us? Like if I said to you, and you weren't aware I was doing it, you were not aware I was doing it. If I showed you some videos of people, different groups of people, who were applying to come and work with you on a project or to come and do something with you, if I showed you a group of people, some of them were ethnic minorities, some of them had strong accents, um, maybe most of them were white people, would you be more inclined to pick the white people? You know, familiarity, breeding, content, is that what unconscious bias is? So I'm fascinated by this, by, by this stuff now. I really am. I'm interested in it, you know, and I'm, I'm open. I don't think it's happening. I don't think, to contradict myself, and I'm a mass of contradictions, um, I, on the one hand, I want to think that in 2024, it doesn't matter if you are born tomorrow, what colour your skin is, or what, what, what your parents' background is. That's what I want to think. On the other hand, I'm open to the possibility that you're better off being white. What say you? Uh, Maria's in Surrey. Hi, Maria. Isn't it, is it an advantage to be born white in Europe? Yes, I'd say so. It's the traditional colour of the inhabitants. Is there an advantage to being white in South Africa and the African continent? I would suggest not, says Maria. My cousin studied in Mexico City. And being white and blonde was even dangerous to her uh, at times there. That's interesting, Maria. James has said it is natural for people to stick to their own. Yeah. I was asked one time years ago, how many black friends did I have? And you've got to tell the truth, don't you? So I said six or seven. I was lying. No, I said none. I said I have none. I don't know any black people. Well, that's your unconscious bias. And I said, no, it isn't, you bollocks. It isn't. I, I don't live near black people. I didn't at the time as it happened. And I grew up in Waterford City. There was one black family. Um, the Marr family. Dennis Marr and Chrissy Marr and Jason and Craig Marr. Lovely people. So everybody knew them. They lived in Ballybeg. They were the only black people in Waterford at the time. Which is an amazing thing. It must have been amazing for them. Well, Chrissy was white. Chrissy married Dennis. Dennis was black. Nobody gave a shit. Like when I, when I think back to it, you know, we didn't care at the time. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have any black friends. I have some Asian friends. Elizabeth says, I would argue the label white privilege is used so whites won't complain about the non-white migrants replacing whites in their countries. That's interesting. Not a peep about black leaders shouting to kill the white boar and keeping whites out of jobs in Africa who have lived there longer than many of those black tribes. And that speaks to what we heard from Maria. And maybe that, maybe therein lies the answer. Countries like Ireland and England and Scotland and Wales, um, for, for centuries and centuries, for millennia maybe, um, white people lived here. The people born on these islands were white maybe. And that's how it always was. So that's maybe explains the hardwired, you know, behaviour or hardwired attitudes 
again, familiarity, breeding content, not breeding contempt. And maybe Maria was right to say, you know, your outcomes are better in African countries if you're black as opposed to if you're white. It's interesting, this stuff. I think there's so many messages coming in here, it's worth a phone in this. David says, Richie, for white privilege, I see rich privilege or the privilege of the privileged. I know poor people of black, Asian and white um, communities and they all share the shitty end of things. And equally, wealthy people, both Asian and white, admittedly the only wealthy black person I know is married to a white bloke. I don't know any Chinese people in receipt of any state benefits, says David. Thank you. Wiz says, Richie, according to the advert for prostate cancer, one out of eight white men will get prostate cancer and one out of four black men will get it. Is this white privilege? Asks Wiz. Interesting. Seamus says, Richie, now I remember you. You're the bollocks that overcharged me for my Aston Martin Vantage when I was living in Odsel, says Seamus. Yes. Alice F. Hello, Alice. Not related, she says. Um, thanks for that and thanks for the link, Alice. I'll have a look at it. Um, it's about COVID and vaccinations. Really appreciate it. Paul's in North East Scotland. Hello, Paul. He says, Richie, I stay in Europe, uh, he says. Um, Paul, can you resend that to me? I can't make any sense of it. It's about fishing ports and fishing companies. Resend it if you don't mind. I can't make head or tail of it. Uh, Tim reckons, as a white man, if I were in front of a judge, I might feel I'd receive more favourable treatment than that of a man of colour. However, if I was in a queue behind a man of colour in the council housing office, I'd probably feel like I was at a disadvantage. Now, this might sound racist, Richie, but if the table was turned, I suspect the man of colour would stay the same. Thank you, Tim. Mike's been in touch. Richie, I applied for a driving job and was asked five questions. Not one about my licence, but I was asked about gender, sexuality, religion, place of birth and ethnicity. I was let down by email three days before the closing date. White privilege, says Mike. Feck off. Fair enough, Mike. Fair enough. Like I said, you know, you speak to an individual and the individual will look at themselves and their own personal circumstances. And for most people, living in Salford, I can't speak for people in Salford, I've no right to do that, right? But I know what I see. I'm surrounded by people who are just about getting to the end of the month. Just about. Just about paying the bills. Just about covering whatever, you know, charges, not charges, expenditure associated with having children, sending them to school. They're just about getting to the end of the month. They've got little. We saw that story in all the newspapers recently about how more than one third of people in this country do not have more than a thousand pounds in savings. Meaning is that more than one third of the people in this country are absolutely fecked if they lose their job or they miss a couple of mortgage payments, or a couple of rent payments. So try tell those people, you enjoy white privilege, don't you? Those people on an individual level will say, well, I obviously don't. There's nothing privileged about my existence. What are you talking about, man? I barely get through, you know, one month to the next month. Yes, but if you can put the individual to one side and broaden it out to wider society, are you better off? 
being white in Britain in 2024. If you were born tomorrow, would you be better off being white? What do you reckon? I, I reckon yes. I reckon you are probably just about better off. And, and I say this because I think if you have to deal um, with the justice system in particular, you know, um, if you have to deal with banks and the financial system, you might just still be just about better off being white than being black. But don't panic. I haven't become woke overnight. I know that these claims, these 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 ideologies, these um, studies and 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 and, and research—it's ultimately about dividing people and conquering them you know, on the lines of identity politics. I know this, you know this. But it doesn't make it any less interesting. And as I said before, it doesn't mean that even if the agendas are to divide people, it doesn't mean that they don't have any impact on people. As I mentioned about the uh, the gender stuff. That's pretty much it for me today. That was an interesting segue. At least it was for me in any case. Uh, thank you for listening. Thanks so much to Zachary Foster. I will put links to where you can read him. He's a Jewish anti-Zionist living in New York City. Went to Princeton University. And he's got some really interesting videos on YouTube about the history of Palestine. And they are educational. They really are. Speaking as a history graduate myself... Um, he's on the money when it comes to the history of the region. Uh, he's obviously no fan of the state of Israel, and I reckon you should, or I do recommend strongly, that you check him out. All that's left for me to say to you is uh, do download and do check out the Papers podcast. It's online most mornings around about 7am. It's, as it says, the Papers. It's me looking through uh, the UK Papers and looking at the stories inside. I'll be back with you tomorrow Wednesday, it's Wednesday already, with the Richie Allen Show. As usual, uh, the show begins at four o'clock UK time. Join me uh, tomorrow. Um, is that it, really? Uh, one or two more messages. I, I don't want to let anybody down. Uh, Julie's been in touch. I've noticed recently that when applying for jobs, the new question that keeps coming up is, describe the type of job the parent that earned the most in your household as a child performed. Isn't that interesting? Why would that be on a job application? Why on a job application would they want to know about your parents' income and what type of job your parent did? That's bizarre. Surely that is something you wouldn't fill in on an employment application. Now, I haven't applied for a job for years. God, it's been years the the job I got in London, I was offered it by David Icke. Before that, I was offered an evening job at Talk Radio Europe. I didn't apply for that. Before that, I was working in the Mrs's Bar in Spain. I've not applied for a job for years, but surely that's one you wouldn't fill out. What did what did your of your parents? Which of them earned the most money, and what did they do? How could it possibly be relevant? to your candidacy for the job you are going for. I have no idea at all. Mad stuff. Right, that's it for the programme today. Thank you so much for listening to it. I've already said that. Until tomorrow, from your BBG, it's bye from me. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. See you soon. Bye now.